Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. You have been involved in complexity research for the last 25, 30 years, correct me if that's not the right time frame. And it is something that people like me who don't know much about it um, think of very complicated. And it's something that can give us um, predictions about things that seem really complicated. But what is it actually about? Maybe you can help well, me understand really, that the, the main thing is that complexity science is about the breakdown of the mathematical tools that we use for science. So calculus and statistics are are let's call them mathematical languages or platforms. And they don't describe everything that we want to describe about the world. So this is not widely appreciated, but the point is that when you get to questions that you want to answer that calculus statistics don't answer for you, um, you have to build new mathematical frameworks. Um, and, and that's what complexity science is about. So, um, uh, it was discovered in 1970, well, not 1970. The solution in 1970 was, was developed for a problem where the most general mathematical description within the context of calculus and statistics was written down. It was wrong, uh, describing phase transitions like boiling of water. And in order to solve that problem, Ken Wilson developed basically new mathematical framework. Um, and in the context of sort of the way you're thinking about it, when you have a system that is complex, um, you really need to focus on what matters because otherwise uh, you can just get lost in, in detail after detail after detail without end um, or you're pointing at the wrong things. So the ability to identify what really matters is a key aspect of understanding complex systems. And calculus and statistics don't tell you how to think about that. And basically what this new math is, it's called renormalization that does that. But in addition to that as sort of a general framework, there are many other tools like thinking in terms of network descriptions and nonlinear dynamics and fractals and all of those in one way or another break, uh, are, are, are violating the assumptions of calculus and statistics. 
Interesting. We, I've um, become a big fan of Nassim Taleb's work, and, and I realize you work with him a lot um, in a couple right. of different research studies. He's been popularizing um, a similar research from what I assume with um, his observations mostly about financial systems, um, about how the stock market works and what happened with the financial crisis. What have you been focusing on over the years? So the main thing about Nassim's work is the breakdown of assumptions about uh, independence in statistics that gives rise to normal distributions. Um, and ultimately, when normal distributions don't apply, you end up with fat tail or what, what, what can be called fat tail distributions. And, and so the point is that it ha you have to change the way you think about the problem. The, the, the typical event is no longer the correct description of what's going on. Uh, and once that's true, um, one has to go back and basically rewrite all of the stuff that one learns in college about statistics and probabilities and so on. So it, that's one piece of a discussion of what happens when you have um, high dimensional systems um, and how they create uh, behaviors at uh, different scales. Um, and so my focus has been on sort of the general problem of high dimensional systems and how uh, interdependence, right? It's really all about interdependence ultimately, right? Because if you didn't have interdependence then calculus and statistics would hold. So, yeah. um, so that's another way to talk about the reason that you need complexity science. Um, go ahead. You had other questions you wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, one thing that we, we hear a lot is that things seem to be getting more complex. And a lot of people associate this with human society, with the, how the economy yeah. is being structured. Um, and it's a the 2000, maybe older lamentation that people feel stressed out by this complexity that seemingly seems to increase all the time all the time is that a myth myth from your point of view or that is actually what's happening no I, there is a one can do an analysis of the collective complexity of collective behavior of civilization basically and show that it is increasing over time the the, the difficulty that people um have about understanding complexity is that complexity is a function of scale. It depends on the scale of observation, right? If you go to the you know scale at which you only see planets as points, uh, then the Earth is a very simple system. But if you go uh, to the scale of, of uh, human beings and the complexity is high, of course, it's also high if you go to the scale of molecules. Uh, but if molecules are independent, then the way their complexity changes with scale is different than if they're in interdependent. And what's happened is that civilization has become complex by virtue of the interdependence of human behaviors. It's like, you know, you order a, um, a, a, a can of Coca-Cola and the question is, what is the um, where do the components come from or the or a car, you know, a car is manufactured in multiple countries and they come together. And so so everything that you do becomes globally interdependent when civilization has these kinds of dependencies. And that's the nature of the complexity that is increasing. And that's what we need to understand about it in a deeper way. Is that also true that the um, 
the challenge for the individual has arisen, so it's gotten more complicated to live a normal life, so to speak, or that's just true for the particular society, but that's actually hidden from us? It's, it's, that's a much more subtle question because individuals can find life simple or complex depending upon the environment that they're in at the individual level. The difficulty that is, um, uh, is to understand is actually the understanding of the, the complexity of the collective behaviors of people together. Um, and and, and uh, that's the issue that is uh, overwhelming people, is understanding sort of how society as a whole works. For me, a research, and I read um, a bunch of white papers and tried to go through some parts of the books that you've written over the years. Um, what I found really interesting was, was one particular section where you talk about the higher... As more complex a problem is, as more complex the organization or society that is able to solve this. And uh, simple hierarchies that we used to have, um, like a monarchy or a Roman Empire, they were inherently limited because the societies that they can produce, when we look back now, they were too simple to solve complex problems. And that's in the end why they failed to solve these complex problems that were, were presented themselves to them. Yeah. Um, have we? Uh, the main how, how problem does... is just to mm -hmm. just to say it in a language that's clear. Um, if uh, the collective behavior of human beings is more complex than an individual, then an individual can't specify and cannot control the collective behavior of those individuals. And and we've passed that threshold. Um, which is a statement about the failure of, of hierarchical organizations in business and in uh, society, including governance structures. Um, and, and, and that's a problem of complexity. Just to jump forward in terms of the conversation, it, ironically, pandemics are not that complex. The nature of the behaviors that are required is, is fairly simple. Um, and the ability of governance structures to do them is, is not uh, undermined, even if they're hierarchical organizations. Um, nevertheless, we see a breakdown of the ability of governance structures to control a pandemic. But the main reason is that they're so overwhelmed by probably complexity in general um, that they don't know how to see and understand the simple behavior that is needed in order to respond to this outbreak. What role would you attribute both of these instances to social media, which seems to be a catalyst in a way that we are not just reacting to our own personal history, and, but also to our desires, but we are making other people's desires, other people's problems, bigger part of our conscience in that moment. And we change our, our reaction that we would normally be relatively easy to predict, we change it more quickly and go more in hertz. Is, is that a major difference to the outcome of your predictions? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, social media manifests the multi-scale behaviors of social systems, including these herd behaviors. Um, um, so, yes, that's a, a brief statement, but it's it's a very ancient statement at this point. The, the nature of a social collectives is, um, is, is quite 
uh, obviously quite elaborate uh, in society. And I, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, the, the, the social media is a, is a piece of that. When, when you look at what happens in the AI research, it seems to be scaling up quite a bit in terms of pure machine power and predictive capabilities. And we had David Orban on and uh, give us an example of the doubling rate is now between four to two months and not 18 months like it is with Moore's law. So there seems to be an enormous amount of computing power that comes online. And we see this obviously with the, the big tech companies um, in, in, in first hand. What do you think does this, what is the impact on this on complexity research? Because suddenly we can actually model uh, things in very fine granularity that before we didn't have a good influence or a good, a good so, measurement on. You know, AI has not helped us with pandemic response, right? Why? Um, the reason is structural. AI is actually, the modern AI is based on statistical assumptions. And as I said, complexity science is all about the fact that statistical assumptions don't actually apply in the real world. Um, and, and the reason that AI is based upon, you can understand that because AI is trained by huge amounts of data. But complexity is multiplicative. It's exponential and 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 the AI assumptions are basically additive in the, in the behavior of the system. So, so the point is that you can have huge amounts of data and you cannot use it to describe complex behaviors because you would need exponential data in the variables of the system, which you can never get. So, so, so that actually is a description of the limitation of the AI frameworks that are being used today. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and in some senses that need to be discussed in more detail, but time is, is short to do this now, the human brain actually is designed, um, around a different architecture. It's a, designed around a non-universal architecture that allows different people to be outstanding at different things. And that is a multiplicative architecture. And therefore, it enables us to do things um, collectively, individually first, and then collectively, that AI, current schema of AI, is unable to do. So, the, the, in principle, you know, my analysis historically has been that human civilization is going through a transition where human collectives are able to do exponentially or multiplicatively complex things. Um, and, and ultimately, AI, the way we're thinking about it, is not able to do that. AI is really just now being able to do very basic pattern recognition tasks, which a two-year-old could do. And then there is this leap of faith that you can go from there into what human beings do in general. And, it's just not the right framework. It's like, it's this one, two, three, you know, infinity kind of projection. Like I can go up in steps so I can also get to the moon. Um, uh, that's just not the way science and uh, advancement of understanding works. Um, that doesn't mean that what AI isn't doing is import isn't important and powerful and, and relevant to social change, all of which is no doubt true. Um, but the main thing that we're facing right now is a transformation of society itself. Um, and society itself is transforming not by virtue of 
technology per se, but much more importantly by how human beings are able to collaborate with each other in order to take advantage of the fact that we are different from each other and therefore capable of doing things together that we wouldn't be able to do separately. Yeah. When you, and I think I can already guess the answer, when you project this forward 20 or 30 years, a lot of people talk about the singularity and how it will impact and how hard it is to see through this moment. That's why they call it singularity, because we have access to so much sheer computing power and it's so cheap. Do no, it's all about human being. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not about computing power. Computing power, it's like... Um, it's more like the fact that we have oil that can can run machines, right? Computing power is a is a different dimension, but it's not the dimension of complexity. The dimension of complexity is is much harder to replicate. It's it's something that in the meantime, uh, computers and computation and AI are not able to do, despite the belief that they can. It's really about people changing, not people changing individually, though that's also true. It's mostly about people changing and how they function together. Yeah. So and this 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 ability to do that requires consciousness. So what what is the part that is intrinsically well, yeah, I mean, for machines talk to get about to. consciousness? This whole consciousness business has been has been um, turned into a um, a deity. Um, Consciousness is, is a process that arises from certain functional roles that you can model in networks of neurons if you want. It's, it's not been done in the process of AI, but that's because it's, it's sort of in a different direction. It's like what you need to do is have emergence of combining two different uh, processes together um, and uh, Traditional current AI is based upon feed-forward systems and not recursive systems. You can think about recursive systems, but the point is that, and again, I mean, we can give reference to this so people can read about it. If people want, there's a book, a textbook that I've written called Dynamics of Complex Systems, and there are two chapters that are on neural networks. Um, uh, and, yeah. and the third chapter in the textbook talks about multiple aspects of human cognitive function and in particular about consciousness and i, I don't want to i mean i can answer it briefly but i don't know that people understand you have to build up building blocks so there's there are two most important building blocks that we need to understand one is this feed forward process that has input output and the other is the recursive process that goes to attractors and enables you to imprint information like you know, ducklings uh, following their mother. Um, yeah. You cannot train a feed-forward network to recognize your mother in a single imprint. So some capability is missing in standard AI concepts. Uh, and the answer is you have to think about these different kinds of capabilities and then combine them together in order to get a model of what I understand at least consciousness to be. But it's an emergent property. It's not a you know, micro scale or, or, um, or, you know, quantum gravity concept. It's a, it's just a process that arises when you have certain ways of combining things that are dependent on each other. Um, but, but that creates an opportunity for thinking also about consciousness as a social construct. 
and, and that consciousness as a social construct can be constructed. It's a particular organizational structure uh, where people can go around saying, you know, is this me kind of thing, which is a kind of consciousness kind of thing. Um, but way too much to talk about in a short conversation. That's kind of a longer conversation. But the basic idea is, again, the following. We have a societal transformation. Um, but going back to the end statement that I would make, um, we're kind of blowing it okay. with the pandemic, right? If you think about, you know, even, you know, the complexity of development of a human being from a fetus, right? You can say, hey, that fetus is going to grow into a human being. It's going to be a thinking capable. It's going to be able to do all of these things. But you can get a stillbirth. And then you don't have anything. And right now, human civilization, as far as I understand it, is, is, is at risk. Um, so we don't necessarily make it through this transition. Um, what do you think, what you would expect of human society? You sound like you have much higher expectations than what's the Well, I mean, we have to be things. able to deal with challenges. We're, 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 in a, we're in a death spiral with this pandemic. And, and if not this pandemic, then the next one, right? Because, you know, I, I, the, the reason why I got involved in pandemics was because I did an analysis that showed that if you have too much global transportation, that you end up with extinction. You go from local outbreaks of diseases to global extinction. And the alternative to that model is not, surely not to be passive. Right, Because if you're passive, that's exactly what happens. You go into this extinction. There is an alternative that if, you, if you're able to have collective behaviors that are able to respond to a pandemic, then they can stop it. And we know that we can do that with this pandemic, but what's happening actually is that the society is choosing to be passive. And that passivity guarantees, right now it's been with all the variants, it's guaranteeing that we're going to have you know, endemicity, which means the virus is going to be circulating in the population. It's going to end up uh, progressively creating new variants. And in the regime that we're in with global transportation that people want to sustain, that's extinction because there's nothing that stops the virus from getting worse and worse and killing off more and more. And that's exactly what the model said. So the point is that you have this range of behaviors where you have local outbreaks and local extinctions. And when you go across a boundary, you end up with global outbreaks and extinctions. It's very clear that we're past the regime of local outbreaks. The only question is, do we use a different approach? Right? When we have, as a human being, our bodies are able to mount huge responses to uh, infections that are able to stop them. But it's, imagine a human body that gets infected and the infection continues and continues and continues. What's the chance that you're going to end up surviving that infection? And the answer is not at all. So the point is the following right now, the decisions that are being made, the actual decisions day to day that are being made by people in the society are a direction of extinction. And again, you know, maybe we'll get lucky with this one and the vaccine will be helpful in stopping the outbreak. But it's as soon as you have these new variants that are potentially vaccine evading, that's not a good gamble. 
And in fact, we yeah. are already suspecting that the variants in South Africa and Brazil, no, not the UK variant, but the South Africa somewhat and the Brazilian variant even more are evading immunity and therefore are potentially evading um, also vaccination. Now, when do they the, actually evade vaccination? We don't know enough. But if they are evading it a little bit, then we're already in the regime that we may get past that, that limit. And there are huge numbers of variants that are not named. And the reason that they're not named is that they don't, they're not the most rapidly transmitting, they're not the most deadly or whatever. But the bottom line is that as soon as we have variants in this regime, we will have other variants that are even more vaccine evading, that may be less transmissible or, or whatever, they're just gonna take a few more months to develop given all of the virus that's in the world. And basically the, the, that's the expected outcome right now. If you talk to the experts, they say, yeah, this is gonna be like the flu. We're gonna have these viruses going around and around, we'll have to take another vaccine next year or whenever this comes around again. And, and what they don't understand is that we're past the regime in which that will is what will happen. Instead, the regime that we are going into is the regime of extinction. When you look back into human history, and my example would be in say 15th century. So you have people from Europe immune to a lot of diseases. They go to South America where, you know, they, they just want to explore, but they obviously want to make money. And we attribute the death of millions of people in South America at the time, the diseases that were brought in from Europe, right? But they didn't, and they, they killed, from what we know, a lot of people in South America. But they didn't have an impact around the world that we still feel, right? The people in Europe are still immune, more or less. Um, Africa has different strains of diseases, I would assume. It seemed like there is a certain amount of viruses that just... I don't know, they're just part of that ecosystem and they will always be around and there isn't much we can do about it. So I don't know why you say that, first of all. There is a, um, you know, first of all, there are diseases that we've been living with for, you know, millennia, right? Yeah. But we've eliminated many of them. Right? We don't suffer from a lot of the diseases we suffered from 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the world was a very different place where we had children dying, you know, a lot. We had, you know, older people would die from disease that was, you know, being transmitted around the population. And even healthy people would get sick and they would end up severely sick and, and, and so on. You, you didn't expect to live very long and it wasn't because your body wouldn't live very long. It's because of the diseases that were present at the time. And, and we've done a huge amount in public health. And some of that was just about, you know, taking strong action to prevent transmission. Some of that was about vaccinations. We've done elimination of diseases. We've done eradication of very few, but some. And then there are zoonotic diseases. These are new diseases that we haven't lived with, but they're animal diseases. And in general, they're much worse than the human diseases because they are... Over the period of time when we evolved with diseases of thousands of years, and they were, they were local diseases. If a disease was too severe, it would just die out local, and it wouldn't persist. 
But again, now we're in a different regime where we have global transportation. And when we have global transportation, if a disease is severe, it doesn't die out because of local extinction. It propagates and does as much damage as you will as 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 it can, right? So that's the difference in these two regimes. So the point so, is the following: it's not yeah. quite that we're going back to the situation a hundred years ago. What we're going to is a situation where diseases that are new diseases are not going to be stopped by the natural dynamics of what's happening. And so the question is: are we going to choose? to stop them from happening. Yeah, and so we, we know have an alternative, can... right? You implied that earlier. What should we do instead? Well, we have a choice. I mean, we, we know how to stop the coronavirus, right? We know that we can stop it. China stopped it. Australia stopped it. New Zealand stopped it. Everyone else is, you know, much of the West is going around saying, let's try to live with this virus. And, and it doesn't really work well, right? That's what these yo-yo lockdowns are about. We've been in lockdowns for a year in much of the world, and everyone's complaining about the lockdowns, but what they don't understand is that the lockdowns are because we haven't decided to get rid of it. If we decided to get rid of it, we would do one lockdown. It would take four to six weeks, and we would be over it. And yeah. that's what Australia and New Zealand did. So, so the point that's is... That's what I that expected early, early on in the pandemic, right? So when I when I looked at the initial figures and I was really worried about the uh, the virus, I expected something that looks like China, but immediately I knew that the U.S. and the way the U.S. and I you know I grew up in Europe. I thought Europe can pull it off maybe, but I never thought the U.S. can pull it off. It's just not structured that way, right? So I think we 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 wanted it, and especially San Francisco. I think it was the first county that shut down, but the it wasn't. Literally, it was takeout food instead of going to the restaurant. I think that's the only thing that, in my mind, really right. exemplifies this lockdown. Everything else was going on more or less like normal, unless people opted out and stayed home, right? And that's really odd because it cannot burn out, as you say. Do you think we still have a chance to do this crazy lockdown? Like, literally, we stay home, nobody moves for six weeks, and then it's, we, we get to the same result? So the, the answer is... My role as a scientist is not to say what will happen. You asked me about our ability to understand society. And, and the answer is I can't at this point in time make a model of society. What I can do as a scientist is say what the choice is and what the consequences are of the choices that we have available to us. Yeah. And that's what I've been trying to do. And, and again, the consequence that we're seeing is that instead of taking the short but hard route, we're taking the indefinite route of, of cycling virus, cycling variants, uh, a perpetual harm. And, and what we can say is that that route is not an exit. It's not a good outcome. But what I can't say is what people will choose to do. But can we in principle do it? Absolutely. It's still basically the same problem. It gets harder and harder. There's more and more harm. The vaccine makes it easier. Honestly, it's a hugely powerful tool. But at the same time, the virus is getting stronger and stronger with the variants. So the point is that if right now we said, look, we want to get rid of this, we have the vaccine, we would use the vaccine while we're doing other restrictions. 
and we would use it to reduce the transmission as much as possible and then get to zero. And we need to use a geographical opening rather than a sector opening, right? It's a green zone strategy. That's the, the science of the control parameters. That's what it tells you. So we have to do these yeah. things like travel restrictions and so on for a short amount of time in order to get out of this. But the point is I think what happened to you're asking yeah, there is this big problem. You know, San Francisco started out with this really early and said it's two weeks to stop the spread. It makes a lot of sense. I think ninety nine percent of the population was hundred percent behind it. But it was now a year, right? And it's gonna be two right, years or five is, years or so. The the problem is that and nobody there was trusts these institutions of, anymore. They've lost all credibility in my mind. Right. There's a huge amount of misinformation at the time. There was IHME or whatever it is, this modeling place. It basically said, look, we're going to do a lockdown and then things are going to happen exactly the way they happen in China. Yeah. And, and the answer is we did a halfway lockdown. We didn't look at what was needed in order to be successful. And, and the point is that this is not a um, this is like a wrestling match. You know, you, you look at someone and they say, okay, they planted their feet. So because they planted their feet, you know, we're going to win. No, you have to know how to use your hands and your feet and your head in order to get through a wrestling match. And, and the point is that there is a lot of this belief that, you know, hey, we have a good medical system so that we'll be okay. It's, that's just not the way it works in a pandemic. A pandemic is about community transmission. So you have to have people that basically are watching and saying, look, we need to get that we need to be successful. This is a hard fight. We're going to do everything that it takes in order to win. By now, we know everything that it takes in order to win. We know it inside out and backwards and forwards. But we need to actually execute on it. And if we do all that, if we execute on the plan, it's not quite two weeks. It's four to six weeks. And I'm running out of power here. Um, but if we did it for four to six weeks and we understood that we need to open up. This is the most important thing. You can't open up before you're there. This is like putting out fires. We have a zero fire policy in the United States and in much of the world, right? In all of the world, as far as I know. We don't let fires burn. We put them out, i.e. house fires, you know, city fires. And, and we need to do the same thing for the pandemic. We need to have a policy that says, we're not going to let it burn. And that's what they've done in Australia. It's, everyone points to, you know, Australia is this, you know, huge, but island somehow, but it's a continent with multiple states and boundaries with transportation going across them, big cities. Um, and, and they had a boundary within Melbourne. We know we can make boundaries that stop transmission from one place to another. That's been shown. The point is that what we need to do is to say, um, we're on a mission. If this comes, we're going to put it out. And so there have been small outbreaks in Australia, but they didn't sit back and say, well, we'll wait and see what happened. They pounced on it and put it out. And as a result, they've been in rock concerts and in sports, you know, uh, the Australia Open, and, and then there's the America's Cup in New Zealand and all kinds of parties anywhere. In normal yeah. life. But they're also but they're not allowed to leave, which I think is a huge restriction on... Even so we have later, to make that a huge choice. restriction on your citizenship. That's right. So I think there's a lot of downsides that we need to be open about. 
And, That's uh, right. I think the not a lot of people think it through that way. The one downside, which is the most important one, is that we have to limit travel. But if we do that, then other people will do it too. The main problem that we've been facing is everyone is looking at everyone else and saying, these guys are, are bad actors, they're not going to do it. But if we all did it, and this is why we need global coordination, global decision-making at this level, then we would have been done with this a long time ago. Yeah, I, that would be sad too. You know, it is, it, again, if you talk about six weeks, I think we, we all agree this is nothing even to worry about and it's the right thing to do. And I think the trouble is that we had this staggered lockdown that never seems to end. But if you talk about years and years and there's no real outside, there's no exit, no clear exit strategy out of this to never be able to travel again. I'm not sure that's something the, the so population with this kind of virus wants to accept. There, Obviously, there, if the virus there, changes and it's more deadly, then people's opinions will change. But once you suppress the outbreak, there's actually multiple exit strategies. One of them is just, you know, expanding, continually expanding the areas that are without the disease. Atlantic Canada doesn't have it. Quebec could do it. And then, you know, Vermont could do it. And then, you know, uh, Massachusetts could do it. So we can go progressively in that direction and take advantage of the fact that other places are, are without the disease in order to travel. But you can also take advantage of the fact that you have the vaccine. So right now we're trying to take advantage of the vaccine. But if we are aimed for elimination, it makes it much easier. And, and in particular, if we're aimed for elimination, we wouldn't have the variants. There is no Australian variant. Yeah, what's interesting is that a bunch of countries in Asia, they basically only had travel restrictions and even those were coming in pretty late. And they seem to have, at least to our knowledge, very little um, COVID clusters. So I'm talking about Japan, which is probably on the high side, but we talk about Korea Japan, and Taiwan. Japan has, and that's Japan, pretty interesting, right? Japan has controlled its outbreak and Japan and Korea have not done as good a job as China and uh, New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, Thailand, and, uh, you know, Vietnam. Yeah, but they never had a six-week lockdown, from what I can understand. Right. They so the point is that they, they did better at the control, but they didn't get rid of it. And so Japan has had three major outbreak waves. And now the, the second largest party is saying that they should go to elimination. The point is that elimination is a different outcome because you don't have the restrictions anymore domestically. Yeah. So you can talk about the fact that you still have restrictions internationally and you say, hey, that's a big restriction on the population. I can't hop on a plane and go to South Africa or wherever I want to go. Um, but at the same time, you can go to the local bar and meet with your friends and have a good time and go, you know, have a... a, a, a touch uh, game of whatever it is, and you can go visit your friends wherever you want to and your family, as long as it's within the area that you've achieved the elimination. So the whole life, if you, if you think about most of what life is about, if you achieve elimination even locally, much of life is normal. And yes, so you can't hop on a plane and go to Mexico for a weekend or something like that. Um, but that's a very different level of restriction than not being able to get together with your friends or your yeah. family. Well, the question remains, 
that might be a very long period, right? So there might be years we're talking about no, until other countries are at the same level. And these travel bubbles never seem to work. Like they're being announced, but they never happen. New Zealand, Australia never happened. Singapore, Hong Kong never happened. There seems to be no trust. So it's hard to do it because people are kind of up against the wall because of all of the cases that are being imported. Um, and so they're, they're risk averse. Um, but again, part of that is refinement of the way we do that. Australia has open travel within the country. They had a restriction between Melbourne and the rest of Victoria. That's opened up. So you say travel bubble didn't work, but it is working. They have travel between different parts of Australia. Of Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. And, but they have also had a travel bubble within Atlantic Canada, and they're reopening that after having an outbreak. So the point is that, you know, again, the travel restrictions at the large scale are the last are among the last things that you can relax. But the travel restrictions at the local scale, you can relax much faster. And so, yeah. the, the, and we've seen that because, because that's what's happening, right? So again, but you also have no immunity for the local population, right? So assume the vaccine doesn't come through, need, doesn't go through. You you can get in vac you, you can get immunity for But you just need a few cases you don't you don't get and then exponentially takes off. Whereas no, the other populations would have immunity. Vaccinated. We're but done with that. Isn't dying out and immunization the same thing? Well, if because it were people are immune, it cannot spread. All they're in any part of the world. In other words, the people who got sick before are not being helped in Brazil either. They're being reinfected. So the Brazilian variant is infecting the people who were infected before. So nobody in the world has immunity to the Brazilian variant if we allow the variants to take place. So that's But then Australians can never travel again. Brazil never have that immunity. Well, they remember, will always have to stay in the bubble. This is what I told you. Yeah. If we want to be in the regime of global transportation, we have to accept the responsibility of being able to stop it. Otherwise, we're into the extinction regime. So what you've told me that Australians or New Zealanders don't have immunity, Americans don't have immunity either, neither do Europeans. They never gained it because the fact that they got sick didn't give them immunity from the new variants. You mean because it mutates, right? Because it changes right. its structure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that would be a very sad outcome if there's well, no immunity. Um, that that would be surprising, though, right? A lot of those diseases give you immunity. Um, but that doesn't right, happen but it's with COVID. It's surprising in this case because the whole point is just like the flu, we've been treating it like the flu and allowing it to multiply. We have billions of virus around the world. So it, uh, it, it mutates. That's what yeah. it does. So if you want a world where viruses mutate and they become new viruses that infect everyone and give them the disease again, and the fact that you were sick before or might have been sick before is now a prior condition to even having a worse disease the next time. That's the world that we're going to right And using that model, you feel it makes no difference how deadly a virus is. So this virus is very deadly to old people, but people below the age of 65, very rare to actually die from it. But Would they end up with long COVID, so their health deteriorates, right? About 10% so yeah. to 50% of people, depending on how you measure, what you measure, biological harm or symptomatic damage. Well, there's That's always going to be... already causing people yeah. to have 
severe outcomes, and then they're going to get infected again by the next time the variant comes around. So the threshold, would you see a threshold for how deadly or how dangerous a virus is? We would have to do this for pretty much any virus that comes up, right? And there's just tons of those that we've seen, but these fortunately well, but never exactly respond. That's the point that I'm making. Yeah. If you want to have global transportation, you're in a regime where viruses evolve towards more lethality, more rapidly transmitting and more lethality. So the point is the following, that there's a physical reality, there's gravity, like gravity, right? If you go to the moon, you don't have strong gravity. You can jump very high. That's the property of gravity. As soon as you have global transportation, you're in a regime where if you don't act to stop viral transmission, just like the body, right, the body has an immune system that attacks viruses and does so aggressively in order to stop them from transmitting. If you don't do that, you'll die. But we have two, we have 2,000 years of global transportation, granted much slower and no, 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 smaller. No. This but is it's why the regime changed. There is a there's a phase transition. It's like there's a phase transition between a regime where you have localized outbreaks, primarily, and a regime where you have globalized outbreaks. Yeah. So it's not a smooth process. In other words, it doesn't just get worse a little bit at a time. It goes from a situation where you have local outbreaks to a situation where you have global extinction. So run me through what would be the, the, the best case scenario. So see, there's a new virus. Let's forget about COVID for, for a second, but there's a new virus that's maybe slightly more deadly or it's exactly the same, but it's a different thing, a different uh, way the body responds to it. What should we do? You know, you could, what should you do is a choice of whether you want to live or die. <laughs> okay. Uh, what would be your prescription? If you can be the, the global doctor, so to speak. No, 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 wait. I mean, let's be clear. You have a choice, right? You can do different things, right? People have a choice. They stand yeah. on the edge of the cliff and they sometimes fall off, right? So people make all kinds of choices. But if you have long-range transportation beyond a small amount, so if we have flights from here to, um, from the U.S. to, to, um, to China, to Moscow, to South, you know, Brazil, to... Um, uh, Melbourne, right? Then the situation is that if you don't respond quickly and stop diseases from propagating, you're toast. So what I'm trying to get at it, so we have a new virus, so we should shut down everything for six weeks, right? Whatever the incubation no, period it is. No, very much. Some diseases, you, you have to understand that different diseases have different properties, right? right? Understood. Yeah. But I'm just trying to get a framework, actually, right? So the incubation time is two weeks. We should make this sure disease, it's eight it would have been enough to do that. two weeks. It would have been enough to do two weeks. It's only once it becomes you know, embedded in a particular place that you have to do yeah. six weeks. Well, I think when we realize what's going on in March, we had community spread in tons of different places all over no, the world. No, but it was if you detected or not. quickly, it wasn't going to be. The, the point is the following. There are huge numbers of assumption. You're bringing me back to a year ago, and it's just really not, uh, re you know, it's fine. You want to talk about A year ago, I warned in January that we had, a, we had the choice 
And people made all kinds of assumptions that once the disease is someplace, you cannot get rid of it. And we know that we can get rid of it. Yeah. So the only thing that we needed was a two-week period of time during which we would identify where cases would be. When you say that there are cases in different places, it's true, but they're not everywhere in those places. So, for example, they, they might have been in a particular place in Seattle and they might have been in a particular place in New York, but they weren't in Rochester or they weren't in, in Atlanta or they weren't in uh, Minneapolis or they weren't in some other place. So what China did when the disease started, which is not a, 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 a dictatorship type of thing. It's just a, it's the right action for responding to a disease. Is they froze everything until they could identify where cases were. And once they identified where cases were, they were able to respond to it differentially in different places. So what yeah. you want to do is you want to have the awareness. This is like an another way to think about it is you can be a plant or an animal. We've acted like a plant. We take the hit. Plants have no awareness, no consciousness of what's going on around them, no ability to, to react to what's happening. So ideally, if, if I made some this up, ideally because it's a two weeks incubation time, the whole world should have stopped for two weeks and that would have been it, right? Because it needs That's to it. be synchronized. Yeah, we should have done that. I think everybody tried, but somehow it didn't work. Maybe we should just get the message no. out and do it. That's right. We should get the message out of here. Yeah, Neil. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate that. Thank you. Talk Thanks for, you. for being on the podcast. Take care. All right. Talk soon. Bye-bye.